Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastoral interns here. It's my pleasure to serve here at Cornerstone. If you have your Bibles, your copy of God's Word with us on your phone or something, uh, open up to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, we're continuing, or we're currently in a series going through the book of 1 Timothy uh, called Living as God's Household. Uh, and so we've been looking at the first three chapters. Uh, this past two weeks, we've looked at uh, deacons and elders and how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to do. And, and now Paul sort of stops and pauses and sort of almost in a, in a doxological way, just bursts out in talking about this mystery of godliness. And so our, morning, our sermon this morning is entitled, rightly so, The Mystery of Godliness. And not just because that's what the heading in the Bible says, but because of what is being spoken of. Uh, when you first read verse 16, it really can seem kind of like a mystery because there's just so much going on. But as we read it and make notes along the way, we will see that though the Bible calls it a mystery, what it really means is that it was something hidden that has now been revealed. It's actually uh, not a mystery, even though it's called a mystery. And so um, we'll, we'll look at that. Also, I just want to note that this passage that we're in right now, verses 14 to 16, uh, has been deemed by our pastor Andrew and, and other pastors and commentators that these verses are like the, the main theme the, the motivation, sort of the founding of the book of First Timothy and sort of the reason why we are to live in a certain way because of the mystery of godliness. So Paul has been giving instructions on how to live and act, and we will continue to do so. But now he takes the time in the middle of this letter to slow down and tell us why we must act according to what he has written. So these are vital verses to our understanding of who we are, uh, why we live the way we live as Christians and the foundation of our truth. And with that, let's stand now as we hear the reading of God's word. We do so not out of requirement or routine, but out of reverence for the one who has made us and for the one who has revealed the great mysteries of heaven so that we may know him and be with him. Hear now a reading of God's words from 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated, and would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths in it. Uh, we pray now that as we study it and as we look at this mystery of godliness, this wonderful truth of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that your spirit would help us to understand what it means, that uh, you would convict our hearts, you would challenge us, and you would shape us to live uh, in a way that is in according with your house, Father. So we pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Well, on Friday, if you can't tell, I just got a fresh cut. I went to the barber uh, and I was thinking about how often when I'm there, I end up take, talking about what I'm going to do on the weekend. You know, uh, on Saturday, I'm going to go to, uh, I don't know, I don't do anything on Saturdays, uh, go to Fishtown or something, uh, whatever it may be. And then, men, and then I mentioned that I'm going to go to church on Sunday. And now, you know, as I have this rapport with a barber, you know, I kind of buddy-buddy with him. I have his phone number. That's pretty cool. Well, he'll just say, oh, that's nice. Or, oh, yeah, that's cool. You're going to church. Uh, but I remember when I first started going to this barbershop, he would ask me about, oh, what my church was like. He's like, oh, 
what is it? Like, what do you do? You know, he's, he would say, oh, I have a Jewish friend. He goes to temple. Is that kind of the same thing? Like, what's going on there? I said, well, maybe when I had my longer beard and I kind of looked like a prophet, or maybe it was kind of Jewish, but not anymore, right? I'm the, I'm the typical Protestant. Uh, but this is always an awkward conversation, right? Like talking about church, mentioning that you go to church on Sunday. Uh, and I mean, how much do I say? What do I say? Well, they even know what I'm talking about. I mean, okay, I gather with like a hundred other people. We sing songs. We hear a guy give a speech about uh, this guy who tells us how we're supposed to live. And then we go out and eat with like 30 people and run over a restaurant. I mean, that's kind of what we do on the weekly. And I think part of the awkwardness or the strain we feel when we talk about the church is because we don't quite know what we believe the church is. I mean, we don't know what we think. I mean, what comes to mind when you think about the church? Sometimes, It seems we think about church more in terms of the gym or a Costco membership or places we shop for clothes. I mean, what can I get out of it? What will it provide for me? How does this place satisfy my needs or wants? And when we think about the church like a gym, for instance, we often think about, you know, does it have the right equipment? Does it have a spa? Are the people there the kind of people I want to be around? Are they a bunch of jocks and and weirdos or whatever? Or are they cool? What are the perks, the benefits? Or in terms of the clothing store, we can think like, oh, I go to this place for nice shirts. I go to this place for good shoes. I go to another place for accessories. I go to this one place for hats. I mean, isn't that how we often treat the church or think about church these days? Especially with the proliferation of this online presence or social media where we can pick and choose who we want to listen to, where we go, listen to the message we want to, what we want to get out of a given church experience, and even look to leave because we feel like it's not meeting our very specific needs. And don't hear me and think that I'm saying you can never leave a church. I'm not saying you have to stay at that exact same point forever. There are good and valid reasons for leaving or going to a different church, whether it's family, life experiences, circumstances, or, or work or whatever. But what I'm saying is that the way we think about church matters. And we very rarely think about it the way that the Bible does. Paul, in this passage, 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, paints a very different picture for us than we probably have in our heads. It's not a club. It's not a membership or a place we come in out of at our own whim, but Paul says it is the house of the living God. And that has some serious implications for for those who enter into its doors. So let's begin. Let's read again verses 14 to 15 and begin working through this passage. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, so if you notice, Paul is utilizing very specific metaphors, very specific imagery to speak about the church. No talk of weightlifting or clothes or anything else. I mean, if there's any connection at all to the gym, it might be that some people call my right bicep the pillar and my left bicep the buttress. Okay, never, all right, never mind. Uh, but actually, in order to help us understand what the church really is, Paul utilizes these, these three metaphors to highlight some essential and foundational truths. And why does he use these? Because once we understand what it means to be the church, our understanding of what it means to live in the church should be radically changed. In fact, it should inform us of how we ought to behave. So we come back to the theme verse. The reason why we ought to behave in a certain way is because of these three metaphors. And yet, these three metaphors inform us as to why we ought to behave in a certain way. So first, let's look through these metaphors and figure out what he's trying to say in them. And so the first is the church is the household of God. 
This means that we're the family of God. We are those who have been adopted and called sons and daughters. You know, growing up, there are certain traditions you might have done as a family. Uh, you might have done certain way of doing things. Uh, there were rules of when, you know, you could date, you could go out, you could work, or whatever. But being a part of the family means that we follow the family's rules. So too, those who are in the household of God should follow the rules of his house. Second, the church is the church of the living God. This is quite a, a powerful and wonderful truth. I, I think many times people outside of the church and even some Christians in the church want to treat God as if he's dead or he's, he's somewhere else on a trip. Like we're squatting in his house while he's away and you know, we're just waiting for him to come back so we can scurry on out. But friends, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. What Paul is saying here is that God, though he is, yes, present everywhere, makes his presence specially known among his people. That is the church, the body of Christ. He is alive, present, and active in the body of Christ in a way that he isn't elsewhere, which really means that he's revealing himself or he's speaking to his people in a way that he doesn't speak to the rest of the world. So to be in his house, to be in the house of the living God is not just to be in some abandoned building or to be in a house where the owner is away, but is to be in his very presence. When you enter into the doors, as ethereal or spiritual as it may seem, when you enter into the doors of Cornerstone, you are entering into his presence. And that has very serious implications for how we think about ourselves as the people of God. And third and finally, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And this is where we'll sit for the rest of our time in verse 15, because it's something that we really need to consider. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what does that even mean? You know, does Paul mean to say that the church is the thing that creates the truth? Isn't that backwards? I thought the Bible was our foundation and the thing which gives us our truth. I thought it was the scriptures that was our foundation. But actually, well, it's not backwards, but both ways. Yes, the word is our foundation, but so too the church exists. Its purpose is to proclaim and defend the truth of God. So let's break it down and, and look at what each of these two words mean and come to understand what he's talking about. So first, when we think of the church as a pillar of the truth, we should keep in mind the context of where Paul is speaking. So he's writing this letter to Timothy, the church, uh, to Timothy, and he's writing to a church in Ephesus. Um, and there are a lot of different pagan religions, but especially um, this, this uh, temple. There was this huge temple in the city, sort of on a hill, this architectural wonder, which was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. I mean, this thing was visible from the whole city. Anywhere you were, if you were on the lower part, if you're in the upper part, you could look and see this temple. You could see it from anywhere, sort of the shining light on a hill. And around the sides of the temple were these huge columns, these pillars spanning 60 feet or more in height. They were built to hold up the roof. And really what they're doing is uh, they were built with the majesty of Artemis in mind. They're, they're sort of showing the grandeur of who this goddess is. So then if we carry over the metaphor, Paul is sort of taking that language and using it for the real truth, which is Paul is describing the church as a pillar, that it's holding the truth of God high for all to see. It's visible from anywhere you look. When I was younger, I used to 
build forts out of blankets and chairs. And I always ran into the problem of never having a tall enough chair or a piece of furniture to hold up the blankets uh, so I could sit comfortably underneath. I mean, if you can see my size now, you could probably imagine what I was like as a kid. I, I was a pretty chubby kid. And, you know, I needed something high and big enough um, so that I could fit underneath it comfortably. And sometimes I can only get it high enough to, to sort of army crawl on the ground. And, and at that point, it really wasn't a fort at all. But when I did find something tall and strong enough, I was able to sit underneath and live and move and do all I wanted. And so I needed those tall pieces of furniture uh, or I had no fort at all. So too, without the church as a pillar, without it standing tall, without it holding up the word of God, the truth would sink. It would be less visible. It would get into the dirt. It would be more confused and indistinguishable. It wouldn't hold up. Us as individuals, we can't raise the truth on our own. We need to be in the body together, united uh, to be together. So the church holds the truth of God high for us. It lifts it up and keeps it raised. And it also, what I mean by that, it believes and confesses the truth even when we're too weak to do it ourselves. It is this objective thing outside of us that is proclaiming and confessing the truths of the word of God even when we don't believe it, we don't want to believe it, are too weak or too uh, confused to believe it, there is this thing outside of ourselves that holds the truth up for us. But just as the pillars hold the roof up, the, the truth, they also press down onto the foundation. So while the church is surely upholding the truth, it can only do so on the sure foundation of Christ. Without him as the foundation, the pillars would crumble and the truth would fall. So the church holds up the truth and presses into the firm foundation of Christ. That's how the church acts as a pillar. And then second, the church is a buttress. Now, this isn't probably what you're thinking. You probably never really heard this word before, but this word has fallen out of use in English today, but it's an architectural type of word. It's something that secures the foundation. It presses in on the sides of a foundation or a building to keep it up. Um, so the church, as a buttress then, is keeping the truth, uh, the truth from spilling out the sides, sort of leaking out the corners. I mean, think about it like those bookends on your shelf. If they're not there supporting and keeping up the books, they'd immediately topple over and onto the floor. Have you ever seen like those big, really um, encyclopedic books? You kind of need something to hold it up on its sides. Otherwise, it's going to fall over to one side or the other. And so we need the, the bookend, or we can call it the buttress, to keep our things in place, to sort of stand in attention and keep it pressed in around the sides. As we think about the church as a buttress then, we should imagine it keeping firm the things we believe, holding it up, sort of keeping it firm so it doesn't spill out everywhere, so the truth doesn't leak out and nothing can get in, nothing false teaching or false doctrine. So without the church then, the truth would not be lifted high or held firm. It wouldn't be contained. It wouldn't be visible from anywhere. We can't do it on our own. We can't keep the truth exactly the way it should be. We'll slowly but surely change it, morph it, adapt it to our lives, how we want to live and what we want to do. And, and while that might be nice for us, it won't be the truth anymore. So we need something outside of ourselves to maintain, to proclaim, to exclaim the truth, to hold it high for us to see and to hold it firm for us to live in. But that brings up a qu good question. Okay, well, 
so the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's great. But what exactly is that truth and, and why does that matter? What does it matter that it's the pillar and buttress of this truth? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us the answer right away in verse 16. So we continue on. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world and taken up in glory. So just like when I asked in the beginning, when we think about the church, we, we often have our own ideas of what truth might be as well. There are a lot of different kinds of truths that might come to mind, certain political leanings or social awarenesses or various philosophies or worldviews, but none of this is the truth that the church is called to proclaim. You might have an idea of, okay, well, the church is a pillar and buttress of truth, so it must be this or that, but the Bible is very clear of the thing that it proclaims. There are good things to talk about. I'm not saying any of the things are bad, but it's not the thing that the church is called, is made to talk about, to hold up, to make firm. And I think, you know, oftentimes our discomfort or our dissatisfaction with the church comes from our expectations for our leaders or our really our pastors to uphold a certain kind of truth that we want them to uphold. This is why we see the, the great evangelical movement or the de-churching or the deconstruction of the evangelical faith. As things pick up political fervor or certain things are desired uh, or desired to be emphasized or seen and they're not, people come, uh, become disillusioned with the church. They become upset because we're not talking about the right things. But it's not because the church is failing that they're not talking about those things, though it very well might be the case that the church is failing in some places. It's because of the church or the truth that the church upholds is nothing else than the gospel, the word of God. So let's look at this truth then. Um, but as we look at this truth, we should note what Paul is again doing here at the beginning of verse 16. He's saying, great is the mystery indeed. Great indeed is this confession. And it's most likely that Paul is taking the language of the people of Ephesus to compare the real truth, the gospel, with the, the, the truth or what they called the truth of the goddess Artemis. And if you remember the temple I mentioned earlier, uh, dedicated to that goddess, part of the cultural norm as they entered the temple or as they walked around the city was to proclaim, great is Artemis, great is Artemis in the temple. And as they looked at these pillars and this wonderful architectural building they could see from anywhere, they are shouting and proclaiming the greatness of Artemis. And so Paul, again, in very, very Paul way, takes a language and contextualizes it and points it to the right place, which is, yeah, Paul, Paul is saying, great indeed, it is. I agree, the pillars are great. I agree, everything is great. Yet it's not Artemis, the, the, the goddess. She's not great. But the great thing is this mystery of godliness, this confession, this hymn passed around uh, the early church, this confession of the gospel. So Paul then proclaims, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to explain what it means. So now I'm going to walk us through what he means line by line and sort of marking them off or uh, categorizing them by a single word to help us digest and understand what's going on. So we start with he was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. Uh, so here Paul means that the son of God, Jesus, became what he was not, that is man, without ever ceasing to be what he was, God. 
We know the story of the gospel that Jesus took on flesh, was born in a manger. He was born in humility. He stooped down and though he was God, became like man so that man might be saved. If you recall, or maybe you don't, but there's a little section in Colossians 1.15, which talks about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. What the incarnation then is, what Jesus is when he is born as a baby is God revealing himself. He walked among his people. He ate with them. He wept with them, rejoiced with them, and suffered with them. This is a fundamental truth that we cannot deny. Otherwise, we have no hope in the gospel. Jesus must be born as a man. Otherwise, man has no hope in life or death. That is the first part of the mystery of godliness, the incarnation. It is essential. And then he moves on to uh, the vindication or what we could call the resurrection. So he was vindicated by the spirit. And here Paul uses the language of vindication. It's kind of uh, oldish language, but we can better understand it really as Jesus's resurrection. Then there's a lot of theological weight behind this statement that Jesus was resurrected or vindicated by the spirit. But really what we need to know is that though the world saw Jesus as a criminal or someone who was guilty, that was not the reality. The reason why Jesus could be raised from the dead was because he was the only perfect man the one sinless man who fulfilled every part of the law so that those who could not save themselves, those who were not perfect, those who are sinful may be raised from their spiritual death to their spiritual life. In Romans 1, 4 to 5, we see that Jesus was proven to be the son of God in power and glory. When he was resurrected from the dead by the spirit, he was shown to the world as the only one who can save. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And now what he's doing is redeeming those under the curse, us, under the curse of the law, so that we might receive our full rights as sons and daughters and be resurrected and in glory with him. Third, observation, you seen by angels. Uh, now we come to him being seen by angels. The, the commentators debate on when, where, and what is being spoken about here. But what I think is really important or what, being, what is being spoken of is what Peter writes for us in his first letter in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. After talking about Christians being born again through the resurrection of Christ, he says, it was revealed to them. He's talking about, just to give context, he's talking about the prophets, the people in the Old Testament. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels sort of peering over the edge of heaven long to participate and be involved in some way in the wonder of Christ's resurrection and man's salvation. They took part in every other aspect of Jesus' ministry in some way, shape, or form, but once he is resurrected, they're nowhere to be found. They aren't part of this. It's something unique that only Christ and people like you and me may be involved in. I remember one time when I was a kid, I got invited to a, a birthday party. So naturally when you go, you gotta buy a gift. What, what I didn't realize was that if I liked the gift more than the other kid liked the gift, I didn't get it. 
uh, I didn't get to have the gift for myself. And so, uh, you know, it was this lightsaber training toy or whatever. I don't even remember what it was. It was some sort of Jedi thing. And, and I gave it to him for his birthday and I cried. I was furious because I couldn't have the toy for myself as I watched him play with it for like two seconds and then he put it to the side. And I was like, yo, I like that. I should have that. I don't know why I bought it for you. Okay, well, I imagine in some way that that's what the angel must have felt like. Now, of course, they're not furious and crying or whatever or upset as if God did something wrong, but they long to be part of the wonderful reality of the gospel. They couldn't have it. They couldn't be part of it, but they see the wonder and the glory of it. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to watch Saul become Paul, this murdering, persecuting, hating man? I mean, what a beautiful testament that is to the power of the gospel, or even myself or you. Can you imagine the angels looking up in heaven and looking down and seeing this sinful, imperfect person who isn't able to do anything right, who cannot make their way into heaven, is saved by the mercy and the grace of our Lord. I mean, these are the things that the angels are desiring to be a part of, the things that they're longing to look at. And those are the things that the angels are observing. A fourth, we get to uh, the proclamation proclaimed among the nations. Uh, this message, which was once for Israel only in the Old Testament, now spreads out across the globe. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles are recipients of the message. There are no closed off nations, no area in which the gospel cannot go. Christ is the Christ of the nations, not just one people group, not just one economic bracket, but to all people everywhere. This is why we as the church are called to go out to proclaim the gospel in the whole world and not just for ourselves. And we can see this clearly at Pentecost in Acts 2 as a Jewish man, Peter, preaches to people from all different nations in a tongue that they can understand and with a message which was made for them. If you remember the story of Genesis 11 at the, story, uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, there's, you know, these people are gathering together to build a tower to try and be like God. Uh, God comes down and spreads them out and confuses them, making the nations. So now in the gospel at Pentecost, the nations are once again brought under one banner in Christ. The nations are united through the proclamation of the gospel by the church. The fifth, we have the affirmation. Uh, he was believed on in the world. And as the gospel is proclaimed in the world, the promise of Genesis 12, verse 3, is made firm that Abraham will be the father of many nations. That Jesus will be believed on in the world and the church will sing with one voice his praises. The whole universe will be taken up with his glory and all those whom he calls will bear his name. And then finally, we get to taken up in glory, which we can just call his exaltation or his ascension. And this simply refers to, you know, Jesus is resurrected. He's with his disciples for 40 days. And then he goes up into heaven um, after his work is completed and his victory was made clear. He then enters into the throne room, ruling and reigning as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He goes before us and intercedes on our behalf into the very presence of our father so that those whom he calls his own may also enter into the throne room. And with one loud voice, we, the redeemed, sing this wonderful hymn. Golden harps are sounding, angel voices ring. Pearly gates are opened, open for the king. Jesus, king of glory, Jesus, king of love, is gone up in triumph to his throne above. 
All his work is ended. Joyfully we sing, Jesus hath ascended glory to our King. All of creation resounding in wonder at what has been done. And these, the mystery of godliness, are the basic facts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ministry, and reality in the church today. And this is what the church holds. It's what it proclaims. And what it, it's what it secures and keeps firm. And this is what the pillar and buttress do. Okay, well, all of that, I just sort of went through and there's a lot of theological stuff going on. There's a lot of different information. So you're wondering, well, why does it matter to know this mystery of godliness? Because it corrects what we believe about the truth. With so other many truth claims in the world, everything can become unclear, hectic, unstable. But God knows that you're desperate for the truth, some truth, and he knows you're desperate for the truth of Jesus. Every person in the world, every person in here, in the church, needs this mystery, this reality. There is no other truth that can save the world, heal the soul, and cure our curse. So the church, with this mystery of godliness, acts like a lighthouse in the night. As the waves of life, the winds of chaos, the weariness of our hearts begin to take hold, we start to sink, we lose our way. We don't know which way is up, which way is down, where to go, who to turn to. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's fighting with your family. Maybe it's you're having a tough time at school. You have broken relationships. You just got a scary diagnosis. You're feeling lost, purposelessness. <laughs> well, that really ruined the moment, huh? Um, but you're feeling these things. Maybe you're in the midst of the waves coming up to your eyes and you feel like you can't breathe. But in the night, the church shines brightly. You see this light. As the water is coming over your eyes, you see every few seconds this light passing over. It's proclaiming. It's affirming. It's exalting. Holding up so you can see. Holding firm so you can be in this wonderful truth. So that all those who are lost may be found. All those who are weary may find rest and all those who are dead may be brought to life. Jesus is the only way out of this water. Jesus is the only way out of the waves of life, the chaos of this world. And the only place where this truth is found is in the church, in his people, as we live together founded on his word and his spirit. Well, please know that the church acting like a pillar and butchers of truth is not a work we must complete on our own. It's not up to us to hold it all together. If it was, it would, it would all fall apart. But because Christ is our cornerstone, because of his death, his life, his resurrection, his blood being shed for our sins and his truth, we can be sure that it will never fade, never fail. We can rest easy knowing that it is by grace and mercy. We can even be called the family of God. So that's great. That's wonderful. That's, that's really great to know. But what difference does this make in my life? How does this help me? How do I know what it means to be a pillar and buttress of the truth? I barely even know what pillar and buttress means. And so as we come to a close, I just want to practically look at how the church acts as these pillar and buttresses. 
How does the church raise the truth high and hold it firm? And really, it's simple. The church does this by telling the truth. As the pillar and buttress, it tells the truth. And we first do this through the preaching and teaching, the counseling of the word of God, doing the sacraments, coming to church, pastors uh, leading and shepherding. The church as a function, the elders, the deacons, hold high, hold firm the word of God. This is why pastors go to seminary. It's why we ordain our elders and deacons. It's why our leaders are trained. It's because the truth is important. It's vital to get right. And if we don't get it right, it can't be held up and it can't be this lighthouse in the night. And so the church is not a personal platform for the pastor to come in and say what he wants. It's not a place where we hold political rallies or anything like that. We proclaim Christ and Christ crucified alone. This mystery of the godliness. And second, we do it through each other. We tell the truth. You tell it to yourself. You tell it to one another. You do it in small groups. You do it at school. You do it at work. You do it at your barber. And this is why we need to know the word. It's not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the deacons. We need to know the word because we, you, the people of God, are essential to building each other up, to holding the truth up for one another. I mean, we do it anyways. Every day of our lives, we are evangelizing for something. We're holding high and firm some truth. I mean, it's because we're made to do it. You know, you might be saying, oh, great is my job. Great is uh, the New York Jets, because they are. Uh, Great is school or what I'm doing or my family. And usually what it ends up being is great is me. Great is me. Great is I. That is the thing that we proclaim the most. So we're always talking about the truth, and yet we know that those things can never really fully satisfy. It's just as much as I think I'm great, I'm not a good foundation. I crumble. I fall easily under pressure. And so we need to tell the truth, the truth of the gospel to one another, being reminded that it's not great as me. It is great as the mystery of godliness. Great is our Lord Jesus Christ. And really, it's the greatest thing we can do for one another in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our hurt, the greatest thing we can do is to hold this truth, is to hold it in front of each other's faces, is to proclaim it and believe it on behalf of others. We need to do that because sometimes it's hard to believe the truth on our own. When we receive that diagnosis, when we have that relationship be broken, when we lose that job, We get thrown into the waves and we don't even know which way we're going. And so we need someone outside of ourselves with an objective truth of help, something that will actually help. And that is what we do for one another. And so this is why when we give something less than the gospel, something less than the mystery of godliness, anything less than the word of God, we aren't helping at all. We're actually hurting them by distilling the truth rather than helping them by trying not to be offensive or weird or confusing. Friends, is this how you think about the church? Is this the confession you hold to? Do you believe that the church is the pillar and buttress of this truth? Well, if you do, that's great. I'm so glad for you, but never forget that though you believe it, you need to continually speak it. You're going to lean in on the grace of God. Hold fast to the truth in every part of your life and not just on Sunday when you're hanging out with your friends who are also Christian. The world needs this truth. We need this truth. Our friends need this truth. 
And if you don't, to where else can you turn? I mean, aren't you tired of seeking in the world to find things that never fully satisfy the, the truths of this world that we try to hold on to, that we constantly have to hop between because it's never really getting every part of what we need. I want to invite you to really reflect on what Paul is talking about here and, and consider if maybe what you've been looking for has been under your nose this whole time. Great is this mystery indeed, but what's even greater is that this mystery hasn't been kept hidden, but has now been revealed for the world to come and be made whole. Let's pray.